Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Glenn Greet, who is the entrepreneur behind Chippis British Market and Bakery and is the first musical director of the Nebraska Brass Band. We talk about his early life in the pastoral landscapes of Yorkshire in England, what it means to be a British expat in America, and bringing some of the old world to the new world, including the cultural heritage of brass bands and the consumer nostalgia of British foods and products. Hailing from North Yorkshire in England, Glenn Greet moved to America in 2000 and now lives in Omaha with his family. A former British police officer, Greet also studied music education and conducting and has traveled with various brass bands across the world. He is the first musical director of the Nebraska Brass Band. In 2021, Greed opened Chippies, a British market and bakery. Its success in Omaha has spurred the opening of two other outlets, one in Lincoln, Nebraska, and one in Des Moines, Iowa. Glenn Greet, welcome to Lives. Thank you so much. So I feel like, unusually, this is probably going to be one of my personally most indulgent conversations that I've had. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. Sure. For listeners, I wanted to set the scene a little bit by asking you about Yorkshire and your upbringing. So what stands out to you from your childhood? What what was your childhood experience like? I think tradition. Um, you know, I, I come from a very old family. Um, I was fortunate enough to know both my great-grandma and great-granddad um, who passed away in their late 90s, but very much church was a thing you had to do if you picture like james Herriot, you know the tv series that's my upbringing you know lots of sheep everywhere <laughs> but steeped in tradition you go to church we have a traditional sunday lunch yorkshire puddings roast beef or chicken there's just things that are done throughout generations and obviously I'm part of that because we still do the sunday roast beef and yorkshire pudding dinner with my family in omaha you go to Cub Scouts, you join the Boy Scouts or the Boys Brigade, just like everybody else did. I think with that tradition, I, I, that's something I really enjoyed. You know, I took Boy Scouts to the nth level, became a, a Queen Scout. Now you have to be a King Scout. It's something you keep within you. You know, my oldest son, uh, Matthew, he's just became an Eagle Scout um, because he sees what that value is through talking to me about my childhood. There's certain things I believe that just keep going. It's it's things that st stand the test of time. You know, Yorkshire is very slow to evolve. It's like certain parts of Nebraska, for example, you know, where it just does not allow itself to change too much or rush too much. Yorkshire is like that. Uh, and I live in North Yorkshire and it's really steeped in tradition where we do not allow outside things to make, to rush it. Um, you know, I, I go home and things are exactly the same. It's still the number bus, the number two bus, you know, taking you into town after almost a hundred years. And I like that, you know, because um, I think there's far too much other things that do rush and kind of get rid of, you know, generational traditions. Um, so I, I was lucky, I think, to to have, have been brought up in North Yorkshire. There's certain things I like, like, you know, recipes. And I think some of the reason I did chippies is to keep some of that within me. You know, um, things that we bake um, at the shop is just my family recipes, you know, a, a rice pudding or a, a toad in the hole. It's, it's watching the customers see the reaction when they taste, oh my goodness me, I've never had anything like this before. Well, you know, I see my family members who, who have long gone now, give that to me. I don't know, there's a personal touch there from where I'm from, but I'm definitely proud to be a Yorkshireman. <laughs> so you, you mentioned James Herriot and all creatures great and small, and so you've conjured that idea of what the landscape was like. You know, what was the landscape like? What was the town like where you were raised? Yeah, um, I think our, um, our school um, song, uh, one of our favorite ones was All Things Bright and Beautiful with the rolling purple hills, you know, the purple-headed mountain, um, etc. It's You just picture that. That's what it was. School was a, a very traditional um, assembly every morning with the local vicar. 
Um, then going on to high school, um, I went to uh, no longer there now, unfortunately, King's Manor School, which the main manor house was occupied by William the Conqueror, 1066. You know, it kind of gives you an understanding. You know, we, in fact, my form room that we reported in every day was the bedroom of uh, William the Conqueror. Uh, in the manor house. Um, and now it's the manor house is still there, but unfortunately it's been privatized now and now it's a restaurant, <laughs> you know, having those, um, you know, very steeped in Church of England then. And uh, even for a public school, the the morning assemblies, we had to sing as loud as we could. Maybe that's what gave me a, a love for music, you know? And in fact, I, I know it did, you know, because, <laughs> you know, being in the North and brass banding, that's kind of where it was born. Um, it wasn't long before I picked up my first brass band instrument and heard the local Salvation Army come down the, the road and kind of followed them back and they give me an instrument straight away and give me lessons and hey, <laughs> there it is. I'm still playing a brass instrument, you know, in 2022. So let's talk about that then for a second. I can't help but call to mind the film Brassed Off with uh, Pete right. Postlethwaite and, yep. and others, right? Ewan McGregor as well. Ewan yep. McGregor. Yep. But there's something Similar, I would imagine, with how you encountered your upbringing with this idea of a rural, sort of northernish landscape, working class communities, change, social change. How far does that align with your encountering life and especially the tradition of brass bands? Right. Um, I did not grow up in a coal town. Um, and obviously the coal, the northern coal towns were affected in the 1980s with, with, with the Thatcher years, um, you know, which just devastated uh, the north of England. But regardless of whether you were from a coal producing town or not, brass banding was, that's what you did. That was what was available to the, to the working men's class. Um, to avoid everyone just going and getting drunk on payday, um, it, these brass bands formed. Still, I think, very popular today. Thankfully survived the COVID um, years. You know, unfortunately, many music groups closed. Um, but brass banding is, is still all over the country, very popular with its, you know, national finals in London. And um, that's what many people did, especially if you, you know, did music in school, you know, Brass banding is taught in elementary school, in, in secondary school. It's, we don't have marching bands. We, we have brass bands, you know. Um, just some of the fondest memories of, uh, of both playing in school or playing in the local Salvation Army band just give me a natural love for music. And so much so that, I, you know, I wanted to be a music teacher. And uh, to London I went to study music. I always wanted, uh, as much as I love Yorkshire, I did want to kind of experience the big city feel um, because that's all you watch on television, you know, and I, I did want to get the kind of experience, you know, I didn't know if I would like it, um, but I knew I wanted to go as close to London as possible. And so I did my music degree down there and um, it, it was an interesting time. Well, well, we'll certainly get to the mischief years. That sounds good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about a, a couple of connected things. Was playing a brass instrument, being in a brass band, something that was part of your family tradition. You've used the word tradition. I don't know if your father and grandfathers played. And when did you first sort of encounter a brass instrument and, and realize you wanted to learn to play this? Yeah. So I do not come from a musical family. Um, I was the first in my family to, to play a real musical instrument and the first in my family to actually go to university. It's Yorkshire, you know, we farm, we, we, we do things with our hands. To leave Yorkshire is, you know, in those, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, early nineties was, you know, unusual, but I had big ideas. I, I wanted to see the world. I love to travel, you know, with the Boy Scouts. I went to world jamborees, national jamborees. Um, you know, in fact, what gave me the love of America um, was my Boy Scout troop in 1993. We did a uh, an exchange. Uh, we lived in Cleveland um, in England, uh, which was the county. And so we did a almost a swap um, the summer of 93, where the uh, a scout troop from Cleveland, Ohio, we literally switched families for three weeks. Their family came and stayed with my family. And then I went to Cleveland, Ohio and stayed with the host family. And I must have struck gold um, because he was head of radiology at the Cleveland Clinic. And she was, um, I think, the state superintendent or something. So on our weekends off, um, well, why some of my, fr my fellow Boy Scouts, they went to the park or something. They took me to Disney World, the Grand Canyon. Um, I mean, they, I saw America, Los Angeles. 
Uh, and I just fell in love with this country as like, I don't know how I'm going to get here, but this is a place I would love to live. You know, I was definitely spoiled because, um, you know, Yorkshireman being given that kind of treatment. I mean, I, f I felt like a member of the royal family. You know, it was amazing. And just at 14 years old, it left an impression. So I knew that I had bigger things than just to remain in Yorkshire. Uh, and, and it seemed then at, at that age, music was going to take me there. That's when I started really starting to be serious about music and started to practice and get better. Did, did you know when you sort of first, and I don't even know which brass instrument you specialize in, but did you know when you picked that up that you had a talent for it, you enjoyed it, and this was going to be your ticket to the, the bigger world? No, I don't think it was the brass instruments. I, I did brass instruments because I just enjoyed it. You know, I, I self-taught myself piano. I had a good ear. I could get away with most things on the piano. I think what gave me a love of music, I, I, I wanted to teach it. Probably at the elementary school level, I always used to go to my local elementary school that I went to to help the music teacher. Because, you know, in those days, the music teacher did everything and she was a great teacher. Um, even just to play the piano for morning assembly or to help teach a class. I did that all through my high school years. Um, whenever I was off, you know, I, I could spare a few hours. I used to always go back to my, uh, my old school and, and just help the music teacher. And I think she just kind of took me under her wing and, and said, you know, help me give me some skills and some tricks. And I just fell in love with, with classroom teaching. I wanted to be a music teacher, but in England, you have to be a great teacher as well as a music teacher. And so I, I fell in love with the junior school level. It was just a lot of fun. And, um, and then when it was time, you know, to, uh, at that age to do your, your decisions and that um, general education was where I took it with, with a music emphasis. Would you talk a little bit more about some of the motivations to actually study music, the education of music and, and conducting and why you chose where you went to study? You, you know, there's there's only really so many different places you can do music. If you want to be a performance person, then you go to like, as a brass person, you go to the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. That really wasn't a, a level I don't think I would have succeeded well in because you have to literally be the best of the best. And like I said, the classroom teaching portion was where my heart was, you know, where that kind of the more options become available because most universities have an education teaching college. You know, I was interested in going to Scarborough, but it was just down the road. And as much as it was a great uh, university college, especially a teaching college, I really just wanted to see how close I can get to London. And so Colchester became my home. And uh, they had a wonderful music college there. And just a train, a few train stops away from, you know, inner city London, joined a brass band there. And that um, gave me some great opportunities and travel. But East Anglia is, is also uh, a beautiful part of England. Colchester being, you know, England's oldest recorded town. Uh, just a lot of history there uh, and easy access to Canterbury and Cambridge. And, and that's that was a new area for me, taking some classes in music on liturgical music, um, which, you know, I'm not a deeply religious person, but I saw the value in seeing where music came from, from a religious point of view. And, and the teacher, the professor was incredible and you could see his passion for you know how music has evolved from the very early days and the places he took us to i just didn't even know, even know existed where we were able to study right where people were writing music it left an impression you've talked about some of these experiences about traveling the world mm -hmm. with brass bands and this really beautifully seems to express this youthful yearning and that you had to discover the world. Yep. Would you share some of these experiences that you had going around the world and experiencing it through brass banding? I, I belonged to a brass band in Colchester. It was a youth band, a full brass band, but most of them were music degree students. So the, the caliber was very good. And we were able to travel to like Spain, uh, Russia, mostly in Europe. But very quickly, the, the, uh, the conductor of that band was at that time the musical director of the police band for the county, Essex Police. When, when he was uh, an instrument down, he's like, Greet, you want to come and play? There's a police uniform there. You, you can wear it, so, you know, as long as you play. And I depped for them quite a few times and got to know the band. And it was an incredibly high-colored band. A um, lot of big gigs. They, we performed at the Barbican, Westminster Abbey, um, Royal Command 
performances. Just a, a very good, solid band. And I think that was pretty much my introduction to the police, um, where three quarters of the band were serving police officers, and many of them from Colchester. So getting free rides as a student was important um, because we had to go to the county police headquarters to rehearse, which was in Chelmsford, um, so about 40 miles away. And so I, I got you know some riding with some serving officers, and every conversation to rehearsals was all about the police. And it just... This is interesting, you know, because I've always been somebody outside the box and thought that if I wasn't so gung-ho on becoming a music teacher, you know, maybe a career in law enforcement, it, it seems very interesting just talking to these serving officers. And so the police band became now me asking, "Is do you need me for anything? To a point where I think I asked the sergeant, sorry, he was an inspector, the inspector enough that he's like, you know what, you can join us. So I became a permanent member and never missed a rehearsal, never missed a, a gig because it was just a different kind of level, you know, on big stages that I would never been able to get probably myself because I was not a performance student. I was awestruck at times to be in the same room as the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, who, who would come up after and stand there watching you, you know, once the cameras have gone and then we'd finish the piece and he'd lean in and say, Trombones were a bit quiet today, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it was just amazing, you know, and, and having gigs with Prince Charles, you know, now King there, that kind of put a seed in me that maybe I could be a police officer and still do music. And I think that's where it started to change to a point where when I did graduate, I think I'd made the decision. I think the police academy is for me. You know, I've had both full-time music education and full-time police with the band and i decided there and then i think uh, a life as a policeman was 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 my vocation so we will talk about the police but i i want to jump forward to today sure you founded the nebraska brass band correct yeah and so you moved to omaha with your family just just a few years ago yep and there was no specific brass band for the state at that time right so what was going through your mind when you got here, you looked around and you thought, there's no brass band here and I love brass band. Sure. Yeah, I have no idea what I was thinking, but one thing I can tell you is I am not afraid to give something a go and I'm certainly not afraid to it to blow up on my face. I had nothing to lose. My wife, you know, I met my wife in Georgia uh, when, when I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. We lived there for 15 years and um, there was quite a few brass bands there. So we were spoiled for choice. You know, I was I played with the Georgia brass band and, and things like that. But when we came to Nebraska six years ago, there was literally nothing, nothing, nothing. I don't think many people knew about British style brass banding. You know, goodness me, well, literally the probably the second month we were here, um, we, we'd settled in what are we going to do for fun? Because we don't know anybody. And, you know, I just had this, I remember it was at dinner time and I, um, I asked my wife, why don't we see about starting a brass band? I mean, if it crashes and burns, it, it crashes and burns. Um, but you know me, I'll give it a good go, give it a good try. And so I contacted several professors at all of the colleges I could find on Google uh, and just reach out to them. And I, I sent a letter, an email and said, um, I told them who I was. I said, this is what I want to do based in Omaha. Do you have anybody who you think would be interested in maybe joining me and starting, you know, see if we can start a British style brass band? And almost every single person replied and said, either this is a great idea. Here's a bunch of people and their contact information, or let me shoot an email out with your contact information. And two of them even said, not only am I going to tell everybody, I also want to join. Straight away, almost immediately that night, we, we started making lists and we got contacts and emails come in. Um, I play tuba. I play trombone. I play soprano cornet, which is not really even an, an instrument over here. Over the next week, we started filling up people's names and, and contact information. Uh, we had created like an application form just to get to know people. And by a week's time, we had 40 people willing to commit. No pay. Just, it was just purely just a community thing. So that was, that was February. And by August, we had our first rehearsal. Marion High School allowed us to have our rehearsals there um, through, because I think the trombone person was a teacher there at the time. Our inaugural concert was at Marion to every, every seat was taken. I mean, it was quite something because it was different, um, you know, and just to play, hear all this British style music 
uh, Colonel Bogey and all that good stuff and even some classical pieces. I think it really intrigued a lot of people and we're on our sixth season now and now we play constantly to sell out crowds you know most of our concerts are free because uh, we try to raise money for other charities that's one of the points we do is you know if you give your time we're not going to pay our musicians it's to raise money for other local nonprofits who may need a bigger stage to get their name you know around for example we last month we had um scotland the brave concert featuring all of the music of the edinburgh tattoo um, but we were raising money for the Scottish Society of Nebraska, who do tremendous work. You know, we've supported Clear for, you know, help with immigration in Lincoln. Uh, with, and we joined First Plymouth with that and Tom Trenny. We've raised money, you know, for Toys for Tots at Christmas time. So it's so good that, you know, a group like ours where we can bring in uh, the audience, we can then send the proceeds back out to other great pr- nonprofits in the community. Does it help you connect not only something you love, something that obviously gives you a sense of purpose because of the charitable efforts that you just described, but also it connects you with this deeply ingrained, intrinsic part of who you are, this sense of tradition and the fact that you talked about your pride in being a Yorkshireman? It does. I'm not the world's best conductor, I'll admit that. But when I go on stage and you know I strike up the band, I'm back in Yorkshire where it all began. I'm looking at my brass band giants who I used to watch uh, hold the baton and I'm just transformed, you know, just I'm put back into a teenage uh, mind uh, watching uh, or even a visiting brass band who were one of the world's best and how that was. It it is, it's just, it's living nostalgia. Uh, You know, I don't think there's any member of, of the Nebraska brass band will disagree with that. I'm very passionate and sometimes overly passionate with my style. Uh, I'm not normal, you know, <laughs> um, and I think that's why they love the group so much because we don't, we're not the status quo, you know, we're, we we are very different. You know, I make mistakes all the time, uh, you know, and I think I frustrate them as well um, because that's something that should be taken in two, two. I, I'm doing it in a fast four, you know, and it's like, why? And I think they've stopped asking why. It's just Glenn. We just got to go with it because they know when it's concert day, it's just magical. And watching them be passionate about it it's this is working this was a good decision and that's something my wife and i go over and over again it's this was a good thing it's taken on a wheel of its own a spinning wheel of its own and now it's for the community you know and it's making an impact and when the time comes for me to step down and maybe just play again it's well oiled and it's about other people and it's about making our community better or making a lasting impression. And that's what I'm proud of, of that group, is that it's not about any one person. It's about the collective making the bigger collective greater. So I'll loop back now then to being a police officer. Sure. And you've talked about how that emerged, how that took shape through brass banding. Would you share a little bit about what is a British police officer? What were you doing? You know, what, what stands out from your service? And how might that be different to people's understanding of what law enforcement is in America? Yeah, I mean, and to answer that question, I can only answer it from being a police officer 22 years ago, which now is a generation. Obviously, things have changed. Um, The way policing has changed drastically. But even being a policeman in Colchester, which is not a huge metropolitan, um, you know, it has that country feel to it. You know, you start out on foot patrol, you know, you get to know your community by walking the streets. My allocation was the town centre, just a small, um, typical British town centre, high street, if you will. And, and you get to know everybody. You get to know the shopkeepers and you get to know the usual people and the naughty people all through foot patrol. Uh, and actually, honestly, I enjoyed foot patrol. I, I really did. I'm one, I like relationship building, you know. Back then, policing, it wasn't aggressive. It, it, it was build relationships, treat everybody with a fair shot. I didn't see much violence as a foot patrol policeman. I really didn't. And I'm sure it's changed. But... I have very fond mem- memories of being a policeman. I have some pretty bad memories as well that, you know, in situations I wish would never have presented itself, but that's part of the job. You know, as a young guy in my 20s, you know, my life was just consumed with my job as a policeman and and playing music in the police band. It was, yeah, just fond memories. Uh, we were talking off air about 
how it was you came to America. And I had assumed it was the love of a good woman. And you corrected me and you said, actually, it was law enforcement. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing the story about how you came to, as it were, learn a bit more about American law enforcement. And in that process, you found America again. Yeah, it was just through a a connecting law enforcement agency that wanted to do kind of um, to see the differences between the two. Um, There was an opportunity uh, to do a little bit of music as well uh, from a nonprofit side. I've always wanted to go to the Pacific Northwest and all of that kind of met very quickly one cold day uh, right before a shift when we were presented with an opportunity. And, you know, like I said, being a young, you know, young in my 20s and with no ties, this might be an opportunity to actually go and live in America and see another country. You know, I'd been there, you know, as a young Boy Scout and now to have the opportunity to work there for both a nonprofit and a law enforcement agency, absolutely. And it was only supposed to be a temporary thing. I will be honest with you, I did not get used to that sidearm. Um, it just, it didn't jive with me. Um, so very quickly it became, you know, a, a desk job. Um, and, but I, but it gave me then another love of looking at American business. Human resource really attracted me. And I decided to kind of focus on, on a HR avenue with law. After a year of being there, uh, you know, I put myself back into school and, and went to, to a human resource and legal studies. And I left everything that I had wanted to do, like the police and everything like that, and found uh, a company, uh, a private company, who, who was willing to take a British person on doing human resources, moved to Atlanta uh, and there for 15 years. And um, then I met my wife, <laughs> who was a school teacher, an elementary school teacher in Georgia. At that point, it was, well, my visa is expiring or I can apply for a green card on my own. And um, so I, I decided to, you know, if it was meant to be, I'll apply for a green card. Just things worked out. I was granted a green card. Uh, and then I met my wife. Uh, and then I married my wife. And um, this is home. And about five years after that, uh, I think in 2011, I decided to become an American citizen um, and just make that ultimate decision. Um, so now I'm proud to be British and American um, and um, I'm my children as well. I often look at that, Stuart, you know, from a music teacher to a policeman and now to a HR person to a shopkeeper, you know, I mean, I, I think I've hit everything <laughs> except an ice cream van driver, you know, it's, I, I think I've, I've done it all. But that's what it boils down to me being a Yorkshireman. I'm not normal. I'm not the typical Yorkshireman. I, I wanted to get out there and try as many different things. And I think with chippies, I finally put concrete on the ground underneath my feet where this is what I want to do. You know, this is my now my, my, my true passion because I can encompass everything that I've done so far. It, it's been quite an interesting journey. Was it Napoleon that, derided the British people as a nation of shopkeepers. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's funny. So maybe maybe actually being the owner of Chippies and being a shopkeeper, as you describe it, is maybe the most British thing you could do here. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> so you came uh, with your family to Omaha um, largely because your wife, she was recruited to a really good position with Union Pacific. Right. So, so you came. But then you, I understand, looked around you, and rather like brass banding, you saw a lack of those elements of British culture, cuisine, experience that you wanted to have. And you talked about being a doer. Mm -hmm. And so here you are. You decide to start Chippies. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, the origins of Chippies and what it does? It's almost the same story as the Nebraska Brass Band. We get here, there's no brass band. Once we've started the brass band, then my mind goes on to something else. And it's like, why am I going to Kansas for a tin of beans? Six hour round trip. This is ridiculous, you know, because I was spoiled for choice in Atlanta because there was five British shops there. But when I get here, not one store in Nebraska at all. You know, and like I said, a six hour round trip to, I think it's Lawrence, Kansas, was the closest one. Why shouldn't Nebraska have something like this? We sat on that for a few years. I was just frustrated with it, but I think it was the pandemic's fault. What really was the catalyst behind Chippies? It allowed us opportunity really to talk with each other more in depth during the work days. And I remember one day it was like, 
what's on our bucket list that we haven't done? You know, so we got our bucket list out and we've done a few things. One of them was British shop, <laughs> you know, a massive supermarket for everything you would ever want from, from England. Um, and Laura, you know, we've been married for almost 18 years now, but on our dates, we, uh, we went to a, the Shakespearean Tavern, uh, a British pub in, in Atlanta, and we wrote a few things down about what we would love to do in life if we were ever given the opportunity. And Laura put down a little bakery, you know, she'd always wanted a little bakery. So we got the bucket list back out and, um, we laughed as I like, look, look what I put a British supermarket. And then right near that was, um, a bakery. And so, you know, me being me, as soon as that went in my head, the cog wheels start turning. And Laura knows this, you know, she's like, oh boy, here we go. You know, she's rolling her eyes again. Here we go. But I, I actually started thinking about it seriously. I was like, this might be a good opportunity, you know, as tragic as was the pandemic was, um, from a business opportunity, when rates are all low uh, and people want you to start business, which isn't the normal thought, you'd think that business is going to close. And they did. But I started looking at the numbers and it actually started making sense. I was like, hang on a minute. It doesn't have to be huge. You know, it's like a, a, a little corner shop, you know, it's not big. I asked Laura, I was like, well, what about adding a little bakery to it? Because it's not unusual, you know, for a little shop in England to have just a little bakery uh, in there as well. And um, we're running the numbers and we talked to a, f a few other people who are way smarter than us. And it made sense. It's like, actually, this might be possible. We'd started to talk to a few British people because uh, I wanted to do like a fish and chip shop to start with. And that's why Chippies was named Chippies. But we found about maybe two, three hundred British people. Um, all over Nebraska or Midwest Great Plains. And I kind of asked them all um, on Facebook, do you want like a fish and chip shop or do you want a grocery shop? And almost overwhelmingly, we want supplies. You know, we want grocery items. You know, fish and chip shop would be great, but a market would be amazing. So I talked to a few friends um, in, in um, Atlanta, Georgia, who own British shops since I wouldn't be competition for them. They were very kind enough to give me their you know, opinions and, and what has worked for them and what hasn't. Laura and I talked some more. We, we um, hired um, an estate agent, a commercial one, and she told me about this little space on West Center. Um, it used to be a candy shop. And I even met the former tenants and lovely person. Um, and I went in there for the first time and I could immediately see a British shop. You know, I knew from my head where everything would go, what things would be, where to put things. And it was, it was all in my head. And I was like, this might work. So Laura and I went home and started to look at the numbers and should we do this? You know, should we give it a try? And, um, so we, we, I think it was February of 21. We signed a dotted line for the space, uh, and just worked our butts off, <laughs> you know, uh, just for, you know, all the way up till opening weekend, uh, with social media and getting the store, testing the bakery things. We just wanted to do a few items like sausage rolls and pasties and things like that. And, um, opening day came and there was a two hour wait, um, to get into the shop alone and not one grumpy person. I mean, we had over a thousand people. It was amazing. That's been the success of each of the stores. Lincoln had a thousand people. Des Moines just opened last Saturday to over a thousand people. I mean, we hit a niche. We hit, we definitely hit a niche. Could, could you maybe think about and talk about what is it? What is that appeal that can be so compelling to people here? Well, that's a great question. And I had to learn this appeal because uh, it blew me for six. I mean, it just, I wasn't anticipating the volume because, you know, after everything is said and done, we kind of looked, we had about 300, 350 British people who I know would be my base, but I grossly underestimated the American response, which came in the thousands. You know, doing the numbers, I uh, the British people um, or people who've lived over there is about 10%. 90% is just from this huge group of Anglophiles, just a love for anything British. I was not prepared for that. Even on opening uh, day in Omaha, 90% obviously were, uh, were Americans, and I did not even count for that. 
I remember the discussion with Laura um, at the at the end of the day. Just, I can't believe the American response to this. I would have never have known. That response is the reason why we opened other stores. You know, because I was just, I was content with just Omaha um, and the bakery. It just, it, it did well. Um, but that's all I really wanted to do. But, you know, getting all these people, first of all, from Lincoln who would travel up, um, all these Americans, especially the Americans, you need to open in Lincoln. There's millions of people. We, we, we would shop in Lincoln. And so we looked at it more and more and just the volume of people, because we always ask people where they're from and, you know, get to know them. Um, and there was just an overwhelming number from Lincoln. And so do we open a Lincoln store? Um, I didn't want to do a bakery anymore. My wife did not want to do a bakery anymore. Just what is enough? Um, so we, we shift the concept to a, a marketing gift shop. And um, we opened Lincoln February of um, this year. Uh, and it's just, uh, that's been great. But then we listen to our customers. We still listen to our customers. And we found in Omaha, a lot of people are traveling from Des Moines. We would love a store in Des Moines. So we did a kind of a study and, and it's still going on all of this year. We, we kind of write down now and jot down and then we track all of our um, statistics on Facebook and social media where everybody's coming from. And so... We've identified uh, seven more areas where there's really no British presence. And then we looked at a kind of a more of a corporate map. We don't franchise, uh, you know, I own everything. I, I, I want to keep the branding within. And so I looked, what could we realistically do um, as a small company? And how many stores could we do without me having a heart attack? You know, looking at the staff I would need, uh, like an operations director and a, an accountant and all that good stuff, eight locations was was where we we kind of looked at. So we, we have a five-year plan um, to open a total of eight locations. So we just opened Des Moines. So then we'll go to, we're looking at uh, then Sioux Falls, Rapid City. Denver, Colorado does not have a British shop. Isn't that amazing? So Denver. Uh, Kansas City, the Missouri side, and then um, Branson, Missouri. So there's something there about the geography for obvious reasons. Right. Is there anything about that you've been able to discern from your customers or these other places you're looking at about the psychology of the appeal? I mean, how are we surrounded by so many Anglophiles? Isn't that amazing? It's, you know, I think that American television, especially uh, and national public TV is really caught on to that. There is a group of Americans in the hundreds of thousands, probably, if not millions that love British TV. But I think the psychology goes on. I don't think it's just British TV. It's the British culture. You know, I mean, you have to understand we, you know, through history, we are very tightly related. One of the best things I love about, especially talking to our American customers is how they've traced their family back to something. So like you said, right at the beginning, beginning of this podcast, it's about tradition. And some, some American families have traced it back to hundreds of years. Well, if you go far back enough, you eventually get to British, you know? <laughs> so it's in, it's in the blood, you know? But it's, I, I think our history, as much as it's, it's had its negative time, has, has made our two countries even stronger. I don't think personally, and this is my personal opinion, I don't think there's two countries on this planet who are closer tied to the United Kingdom, to the United States. We share values, you know, we, we share opinions. We, we are very similar. We're very different, but we're very similar. And I think we definitely have each other's back. We want a greater good. And just the relationship on the United States and the United Kingdom over the generations, I think, is as we've, we've stood the test of time. The world is better <laughs> having unity like that. I'm thinking about what's in my head is I'm thinking about you still as this young teenager yeah. having these encounters in the world, not least in America. And you're describing yourself as, as the unusual Yorkshireman who's looking to step out into the big wide world. So you do. And so here you are celebrating your Britishness. And of course, I celebrate that with you. So I'm applauding along. And I wonder though, if having a British business makes you feel more homesick, if, if actually you were ever tempted to actually just completely reinvent yourself here, as opposed to perhaps building a business that in some ways is probably really personal and nostalgic for you? What a great question. 
I came to the conclusion very quickly. Like I said, I've been here 22 years. Last year was my threshold year where I finally lived longer in America than growing up in England. And that hit me hard. But I've never been really homesick because even since leaving Yorkshire for London, where you are is who you are, not the soil you stand on. You know, you should be proud of what you are wherever you go. So I'm always thinking that when I talk to people, when I relate to people, I'm still a Yorkshireman, whether I'm in Yorkshire or not, because I'm proud of where I've come from and I'm proud of my, my, my heritage, my culture. I try to show that in everything I do and, and, you know, not saying I'm better because I'm not, but I've embraced my heritage. And so things like with the Nebraska Brass Band, it's, it's just an opportunity to share it with other people saying, this is, this is what I've enjoyed in life. And if you're willing, he, try it. You know, so I think that's why the Nebraska Brass Band's been so successful because it's different. It's not better. We're not the best band, uh, we're, but we're not doing it for that. It's to embrace another culture that has strong ties to the United States, um, but as, 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 as a different path. Um, and I think like chippies, people gravitate towards that because we're not better. It, we're different. It's a niche. And I think since it's British, a lot of Americans really enjoy either experiencing it or being part of it. I think that's been rewarding and comforting to me. And, and the, the reason I don't get homesick is because my home is around me. Um, it will always be in me. And people know that I'm very passionate about where I've come from, as well as embracing the American culture. It, it's, I'm really living that melting pot here. That's, that's why I don't get homesick because my home is British and American, you know? So at times it's like being back home. I'm curious if you look back on Britain and perhaps see it differently, if your perspectives on Britain as a country, as a culture, how you feel about it, a different just because you occupy now this duality and you live here. This is home. Yeah. Um, we can only give an impression of, of England and how we were taught it. You know, as a, as a young boy, you know, I, I went through British school in the eighties, you know, we're coming out of the old colonial imperial times. Um, so it's, I'm not familiar with that. Yes, we've learned about the world wars, but I, that is a generation different to me. You know, my great grandma and great grandfather were psychiatric nurses in the war uh, who received shell shock soldiers from Europe and their stories were quite horrendous. But then I saw my great grandma as Florence Nightingale, you know, a hero, a heroine to me, you know, um, but that was not the Britain I lived in. You know, I lived in post-war Britain, you know, uh, you know, the eighties had its own challenges. So coming over here and listening to people, well, you know, the revolutionary war and everything like that is I, I, we weren't taught that in, in England, you know, it's not something we really want to study. I don't think, but studying it over here, you know, from the American's perspective, it's quite interesting how everything has come around and come to be and how things happened. I, I'm, I am big on history. I, I enjoy documentaries. I particularly love the relationship between Churchill and FDR. Uh, it's just fascinating, that kind of history, but I'm not from that generation. It, it's, and sometimes that's been interesting to talk over here as though I am an expert in it and I'm really not. I'm from Yorkshire, you know, you know, I know, I know sheep and farming and, you know, things like that. But, uh, we have quite a history, you know, and, and some of it good and some of it not so good. I, I remember, you know, things like, I think it was Prince Charles who, you know, was there when Hong Kong was returned. You know, if you look at the, the independency scale from Britain, especially, I mean, it's pages and pages. I think we've learned from our mistakes, you know, some we've had to apologize for, and I'm glad we have apologized. But I'm still proud to be British. You know, I believe in the royal family. I always have. I've served the crown. They do good things, you know, but no, no society is perfect, you know, but I would hope that we evolve uh, for the good, for the greater good, just as the United States has. Every country has its issues here, the civil war and things, but we've learned, uh, we evolve, we adapt, and hopefully we get better. And as much as America gets better, I would hope to say that so does the United Kingdom. I feel personally for me, I, I have my own business. I sort of manage, I don't work for someone else, I work for myself. 
I don't know that I could have done that in Britain. I don't know if I would have had the same sense of character or that was a possibility. So I'm, I'm wondering for you, if you identify as an immigrant, if you identify as an entrepreneur, and if you identify as someone who you would not have been. Right. I know this is, you know, this isn't your life, so it's hard to compare. But if you think you've achieved things here, you are a person here that you would not have been if you'd stayed in Britain. One thing I have known almost since day one is that the United States is a land of opportunity. I have known that from the first hour of stepping it, and if not before that. Watching America uh, from a child on the TV, it's a magical place. Yes, you've got Disney World there and things like that, but it's so much more. I don't think Americans fully know how most people in the world view America as a positive place. You can tell that because more people want into the United States than one out. That's that's a sign of you know succeeding as a country when more people want to come to this country than want to leave. I, I fell in love with America at a very young age, and then when I was afforded a trip, it kind of solidified that this is an amazing place, and it should be hard to get here. It really should. It, it shouldn't be impossible. This is a great country, and. You're absolutely right in your question that I think there's a lot of things I would not have done had I remained in Britain. I don't think it's instilled into the British mindset to be entrepreneurial. We are taught from right as a young boy or a young girl to just pull yourself together and get on with it. Um, we, we don't do, we're not sensitive, you know, we, we, we just get on with it. And we're not really taught to be go be what you want. You can do anything. If you put, when we are taught a job is important, doing the right thing, raising a family is important. Whether you've got to work in a shop or you, you, you get a high paying job, it's, you've got to work. But in America, it's, it's that. And then so much more that not only do you have to work, but if you work hard enough, you can do and be whatever you want. It just goes to the nth level. Um, which is why, at a very young age, I knew I either wanted to be a music teacher or I wanted to be a policeman, but I didn't want to be the prime minister. I didn't have goals or aspirations to do anything like that. But when you step into American soil, you can be whatever you want if you believe in yourself. And I, I think that's unique to the United States. It, it's, it's, it's a land of dreams. I really do believe in the American dream. I really do. Because if it is, if you work hard enough and you believe in yourself, you, you can achieve a lot in life, much of which I don't think I would have achieved in the United Kingdom had it still been there. Only I think America could have made that happen for me. How do you feel like you are influencing Omaha? And how do you think Omaha is influencing who you are? I always feel in the six years I've lived in Nebraska, this region is like no other region in this country. I've lived in Seattle, very similar to United Kingdom with, with weather and people and everything. Atlanta, the deep south, the Bible Belt, very different. Then I end up in Nebraska, and to a certain degree, it felt like I have taken a breath back, a step back. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm back in the olden days. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. I guess I'm saying Nebraska has a very real understanding that this is what we're going to do and what we're content with, with living our lives. We're not going to rush life past quickly. We're going to take a step back. We're going to use kindness, even when it's not deserved. You know, it's, I don't know, uh, six years here, I have never met just a community that just cares about its community. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But from my experience of talking to people I don't know about starting a brass band and they immediately write back, just even write back and, and give positive things like, this sounds amazing. I don't know too much about it, but I wish you all the best to customers who are just like somewhat interested, but are the most kind people. I can't think, and my wife, and I know she would agree, I can't think of a better place to raise our children. I'm very fortunate and I'm very lucky that I don't know how we ended up here or whoever, I don't know. It's just this, we're here for life. Uh, we have no 
we want to live. We're grounded here just because it's just a wonderful place. You know, the schools, you're right. The, the Omaha community has embraced us, but I think we're not afraid to talk and try to be that what Omaha is with kindness and, and try to leave things better than you, you've left it. That's, that's what I try to do with the Nebraska Brass Band is for others. It's others, 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 you know, and I think the majority of Nebraska is about others. Let's, it's a community, not an individual. And it's refreshing, you know, because we're, we're all in it for the greater good. We're, if I end chippies knowing that we've made some other people's lives a little more happier given them an experience of a, of a place once lived or a vacation once taken, that they come away from chippies having a little bit better of a day, then my job and my, my point is done. Uh, and I'm just, I'm really excited about what the future holds. I, I really am. Um, it's been really enjoyable. My guest today has been British expat Glenn Greet, who is the first musical director of the Nebraska Brass Band and the entrepreneur behind the British market and bakery, Chippies. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>